Hey everyone, Alyssa here, and you're listening to Calm Conversations, a podcast where we talk about all things mental health. So today's topic is about relationships. And the reason why we're doing this is because when we've done a lot of our talks, we get a lot of questions around relationship issues of all sorts. And you know, mental health issues can be triggered very often by relationship troubles, whether that's breakups, divorce, toxic relationships. Anyway, it's such a huge topic though, and we could probably do an entire series on this. So today, we're gonna hone in on specifically to, uh, romantic relationships and you know how they can become toxic. So I'm here today with Jolene Hui. She is a US-trained registered psychologist here in Singapore with a decade of clinical experience. She is the founder of Clarity Counseling and Consulting. And Jolene, thank you for being here today. How are you? I'm good, how are you? It's my pleasure to be here. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? How did you get into the mental health profession? Well, psychology is actually um, my second career. Mm. So my undergrad studies was in communications. And originally, I was in the advertising and PR industry for a couple of years. Uh, But the work I did there was not completely unrelated to psychology. Uh, I created brand strategy for Fortune 500 companies. And in the process of doing so, I had to do a lot of consumer research, uh, dig into consumer psychology, whole focus groups and stuff like that. So it kind of led me naturally to the field of psychology. Right. Yeah. Still, going from, you know, branding to helping people, that is quite a jump, right? Well, actually, the father of behaviorism, uh, B.F. Skinner, who um, behaviorism is one of the pillars of psychology, he actually went into advertising himself. So um, advertising actually uses psychology to drive sales, I suppose, sales of products and services. So you could say that I went from the dark side to the good side. (laughs) (laughs) Now I focus on using psychology to improve the mental health of my clients. Amazing, amazing stuff. So... We'll get into today's topic, which is on relationships. And I want to ask you just what are the most common relationship issues that people come to you when they go to therapy? Well, off the top of my head, I think a lot of people come to therapy um, because of relationship issues. Uh, I would say besides stress and anxiety, relationship issues would be the number two reason um, that people seek services. And people come in for a variety of reasons. I think... um, A bad breakup is a pretty common reason, Uh, separation, divorce, dealing with infidelity. But also I feel that a lot of people come into therapy because they've noticed a certain, I would say, relational pattern that they keep repeating um, that doesn't serve them anymore. And they want to know how to break out of that. Mm. I mean, that is a huge question that I have actually. Getting into the topic of toxic relationships, could you help us define what that is? Um, Well, toxic relationships, I guess, um, is a term that has been used pretty widely. But in clinical terms, I suppose um, toxic relationships can cover a variety of situations. Obviously, in the extreme end would be relationships that are psychologically or physically abusive, right? Um, And I do want to make a caveat that a lot of the perhaps... Um, comments or conclusions that we make today might not apply if you are in a psychologically or physically abusive relationship. Um, And I do have comments about that maybe at the end. Okay. Yeah. But I suppose that is the extreme example of a toxic relationship. The other, I think, example of a toxic relationship is, I suppose, the word codependency comes up a lot. 
and um, there are various uh, opinions about what a codependent relationship is. Um, broadly speaking, when you are in a codependent relationship, um, you are not able to set or maintain healthy boundaries with your partner. Um, so we're talking about physical, emotional, and mental boundaries. And they, there seems to be a high rate of what we call enmeshment with your partner. Um, so you're not able to maintain um, independence uh, from your partner in many categories of your life. Right, right. So why are some people like drawn to people who are bad for them? Okay, that's... Um, in order to answer that question, yeah. maybe um, what, what I can do is to give a background on um, attachment styles and attachment injuries. So broadly speaking, I suppose um, the opposite of a toxic relationship is what we would call a secure relationship, right? And a securely attached individual um, is an individual that can balance both uh, their intimacy needs and their independence needs at the same time. Now, this internal conflict between intimacy and independence has been well documented by a lot of developmental psychologists. The human beings are wired for community and belonging and closeness and intimacy, but we also treasure our autonomy and freedom and independence. And a lot of us growing up, especially those who are right now listening in, who are maybe in um, late adolescence or early adulthood, you'll see that this is actually the central challenge, the central psychological challenge of that developmental stage. How do I balance my intimacy needs and my independence needs? And a securely attached individual is able to do that. So a securely attached individual is comfortable with closeness, is comfortable with um, vulnerability, but also comfortable with their own independence. So a securely attached individual can, can articulate that they need their partner, but can also be independent at the same time. And that person can be vulnerable and hold their partner's vulnerability. So that is a securely attached attachment style. Now on the flip side, we have the two other attachment styles that crop up pretty frequently in therapy, and I'll cover the two quite briefly today. The first is the anxious attachment style. So I would say the anxiously attached individual is pretty ambivalent about closeness and intimacy. The anxiously attached individual uh, really needs a lot of closeness and reassurance, but also deep down fears rejection and abandonment. Mm. Okay, So this is where we get maybe the patterns of self-sabotage that I see a lot in therapy, right? I really want to be close to someone, but because I'm afraid that they might reject me, you know, I'm going to leave first, uh. right? Or I'm going to do something to uh, kind of shake the relationship up, test that other person, you know, um, and then maybe in that way, protect myself, right? From the risk of being Of them rejected. leaving first. Exactly. Right. I don't want to be left behind, so therefore I leave first. Uh, so this individual is desperate to be heard and validated in the relationship and craves closeness, but sometimes associates closeness with abandonment. Mm. Okay. Um, and the last um, attachment style is what we call the avoidant attachment style. And the avoidant uh, avoidantly attached individual is also equally ambivalent about intimacy, but the ambivalence shows up differently. So this person wants a relationship, but closeness can feel uncomfortable and mysterious. This person um, 
might never have learned to deal with conflict. And this person might be in uh, deep denial about their own attachment needs. Um, they might be more comfortable solving emotional problems with reason and logic. So very often what we see in therapy is that um, anxious and avoidant relational dynamic. Mm, so if you put like an avoidant person and attachment uh, anxious attachment person together, it's a, it's a ticking time bomb, basically. Well, this is the dynamic that we see most <laughs> right, frequently in right. couples therapy as well. And I have to say that, um, obviously, um, by and large, obviously, this is a wide generalization mm. and mainly due to also a lot of cultural conditioning that the female partner often shows up in therapy as the anxiously attached individual. Mm. Now, the female partner might be the one that initiates therapy. That's kind of like 70% of the time, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, maybe throws down an ultimatum to a partner. Like if you don't come to counseling with me and that's it, right? Well, Can I ask, is that yeah. because women are more likely to be, you know, that type or it's because women are more likely to go to therapy and that's why you see it coming up more often? Well, I would say that, like I said, it's a wide generalization mm. about women because of the cultural conditioning that we're exposed right, to, okay. right? And maybe more in the Asian context as well, that women have been culturally conditioned to be the caregiver or the mm. mediator or, you know, um, the maternal figure, right? right. Um, so in the relationship, she shows up as the more anxiously attached individual because she's the one that says, hey, we got to talk about these issues, you know, we got to solve these problems. We got to talk about how we're going to manage the childcare of our children. And we got to talk about the future uh, plans of the relationship, right? So she's often the driver of the relationship. And you'll see, again, wide generalization here mm -hmm. that the male partner is often the avoidant personality, right. that he often maybe distances and withdraws and isolates himself. And he gets, you know, a little lost and flustered and he doesn't know what to to do when his female partner brings up these issues. And this is actually what we call also um, the pursuer-distancer dynamic. So if you want to call it pursuer-distancer or anxious-avoidant, both uh, work. Um, but, you know, the pursuer-distancer, I think, label gives us a really accurate description about what we see in the therapy room, right? So somebody pursues the problem and the other person distances mm. himself or herself from the problem. And I will say that this dynamic actually exists in um, hetero relationships, but also in gay relationships, uh, in trans relationships, in bisexual relationships. So no matter what kind of uh, relationship you're in, whatever gender identity um, or gender uh, sexual orientation, that this dynamic keeps showing up again and again. Yes. Right? So in this, and you said a lot of people come to you and they realize this pattern with themselves, it's happening again and again with every single relationship. How do you work with these individuals to solve, you know, what is that core problem there? Yeah, well, if I'm working with an anxiously attached individual, um, the first is to realize that, hey, you know, maybe this pattern of behavior, this relational pattern no longer serves me because maybe my own anxiety levels are so high that I can't possibly repeat this again in my next relationship. You know, the anxiously attached individual is often flooded and overwhelmed with intense emotions, and that is not sustainable, right? So in a pursuer-distancer dynamic, and if you think that you are the pursuer, you know, you're the more anxious person in the relationship. You're always thinking about how do I solve the problems in my relationship? How do I take the relationship forward? The thing is, though, the lesson here is really difficult, but really necessary. 
the only way to break the pursuer distance dynamic is if the pursuer stops pursuing. Mm. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Because the more the pursuer pursues, the more the distancer distances. Mm. Yeah. And if you are going to solve every single thing in the relationship, Are you giving your partner the chance to step up and take responsibility for the relationship? Right. Right. Yeah. So sometimes it's really hard to do, but it is absolutely necessary to do less, to take less responsibility in the relationship so that your partner has the opportunity to step up and do more. Right. And how about when I last talked to you, you talked about attachment injuries quite in depth. Could you share a little bit what, what are attachment injuries and how do they show up actually in these kind of relationships then? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, when we talk about attachment injuries, typically we are referring to attachment injuries that occur, let's say, in childhood, you know. And I think a lot of us, I know there's a saying in psychology that, um, you know, that a lot of the issues in adulthood can be traced back to childhood. And that is, unfortunately, in many cases, not an exaggeration. <laughs> okay. um, so for instance, you know, if you've had a childhood attachment injury, for instance, uh, you were being shamed as a child when you messed up or did something wrong, then you would have an unmet attachment need to feel worthy and lovable as a person, even when you mess up. You know? And in your adult relationships, this can show up as being maybe overly defensive and hypersensitive to perceived or real criticism from your partner. Um, in another in, uh, example, for instance, if you were in, unfortunately, like many typically Asian families, you were praised for your accomplishments more than anything else. Maybe your worth as a person was primarily measured by your performance. And there was little curiosity from your caregivers about your inner emotional experience, then your unmet attachment need would be to feel valuable for your whole self, not just about your achievements or accolades or even how you look. And this might show up in your adult relationships as maybe placing too much emphasis on appearances mm. or, you know, achievement. Um, be it financial achievement, professional achievement, or maybe just, you know, looking like the perfect couple. Um, and you might have difficulty connecting on an authentic level. So I think it's worth to say that all of us have unmet childhood needs, right? There, there are no perfect parents. Um, no matter how great your childhood was, your parents were flawed human beings. And we all have unmet emotional needs. Um, I think the thing about being a securely attached individual, I think coming back to your question, what is a healthy relationship? How does it look like? Is if each individual takes ownership and responsibility of their own unmet emotional needs and not to look to the other person as the be-all and end-all solution, right? Of everything that I didn't get from my parents, you know? So that unfortunately shows up a lot in therapy, these unrealistic standards or expectations for the other person, you know, because our partners are as flawed and as human as we are. Right. So my next question for you, and I see it a lot in friends who are, are in relationships, they stay in these relationships for a really long time and they don't realize that it's 
actually been toxic for a long time. So, you know, what, what, why is it that some people really just stay on and don't recognize? And also maybe a second part to this would be what are the red flags that they need to look out for that to know this relationship is getting, you know, unsustainable, it's getting unhealthy to a level that it's become toxic? Mm. Um, I guess I, I'll probably answer the first question um, and then address the second mm. one about, you know, when when do we have to set those boundaries or leave a toxic relationship? I think the first one is kind of noticing um, if you are taking ownership and responsibility of your own emotional needs um, as an autonomous adult and meeting those needs yourself. Um, also being present in the relationship, showing up in the relationship is key. But also, like I said, I think uh, to be in a healthy, securely attached relationship requires working on setting and maintaining and articulating healthy boundaries. And this might mean, you know, having um, discussions with your partner about what those healthy boundaries look like. Uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, how you spend your time or your weekends, how you spend your money, how you divvy up the childcare. All these are boundaries that might need to be really um, kind of worked out because, again, I think uh, when two people come together, we come from very different cultures, um, very different ways of articulating those boundaries. Um, now, I, th I think coming back to the earlier comment I made about um, unmet childhood needs, we also have to kind of touch a little bit about childhood roles and how sometimes we replicate that in our adult relationships. So again, um, I think using the examples of the female partner being, you know, generally being acculturated to be the caregiver or mediator in the relationship, right? So if you grew up, for instance, being um, the good girl, right, in the family or the one um, that's taking care of other people's needs all the time, then that would be a very familiar role to you as an adult. It's almost, you know, your default um, so is programming. It, yeah. As long as that person is fulfilling or the relationship is fulfilling, allowing you to fulfill that role, you're going to tend to continue in that relationship unless, you know, not unless, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess the point, yes, I, absolutely. We, we tend to repeat um, the roles that were given to us in childhood in our adult relationships until we realize that maybe we don't want that role mm. anymore. Yeah, right. That's what I was right. To say. So, <laughs> right. If you get you know continuously frustrated or resentful of your partner because you're always the one caretaking, right? And when I mean caretaking, I don't mean just physically because, for instance, I know that mothers um, carry the majority of the emotional load as well. So emotional caretaking for your partner, for your kids, for extended family, and you're feeling frustrated and resentful, it could be that you're tired then, you know, you've just had enough of being the caretaker in the relationship. And that's when a lot of people then seek therapy because they realize that, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. It's unsustainable. I'm so tired. I'm so burnt out. And so I guess to answer your question, we do stay in a familiar dynamic 
until the dynamic is no longer sustainable for us. Right. And I think you kind of answered in that, like the red flags as well. So it's if you're feeling burnt out in your relationship, then perhaps it's no longer serving you the way it should. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you're continuously emotionally burnt out, that's definitely something that you need to listen to and to honor that need to, you know, take care of yourself first. Are there any other red flags to note? Drawing on, I would say, um, what um, therapists would consider the um, experts on couple relationships uh John Gottman and his wife, who are considered master therapists in in the U.S., and from their research, you know, spanning decades of studying couples, and um, now they've kind of got it to us almost like a science. They can actually predict which couples stay together and which couples don't. Um, so, drawing from that research, right, they're what we call the four horsemen of a relationship. And obviously, these four horsemen exist in all relationships, both healthy and unhealthy relationships. But if you have, you know, huge, intense amounts of these behaviors, then I would say that's probably not going to be a sustainable dynamic. The first red flag would be, you know, continuous or intense criticism, mm -hmm. right? If you feel that your partner is always criticizing you. And blaming you, finger pointing,、um, instead of taking ownership for his or her part in the dynamic, I would say that's that's not already a good sign because I think the basis of any relationship is mutual respect.、Um, the other,、um, I would say, horseman, or using the Gottman term, is contempt. So if your partner is continuously putting you down as an individual. Uh, not respecting your opinions or boundaries or values, that's again not a really good sign, is it? So I think these two, criticism and contempt, often come together.、Mm. They rarely exist without the other. So when we see high levels of criticism and contempt in a relationship, we know that the relationship isn't very healthy. What are the other two horsemen? So the third、uh, horseman is what we call defensiveness, and this I, again, like I said, it's pretty common in all relationships, right? But defensiveness is usually a response to、uh, criticism, and this is a sign when the relationship is on the rocks, when there are high levels of defensiveness, and you see that, right? Like、um, jumping to conclusions, making assumptions of your partner. Um, not being receptive to their point of view,、uh, the defensiveness has become the default way of approaching your partner, and that's always not a good sign. The fourth horseman is what we call stonewalling, and stonewalling is usually a response to contempt. Now I mentioned just now the pursuer distance dynamic, right? So generally, the pursuer would be the one. Giving feedback, and sometimes that feedback might come across as criticism. And then the distancer is usually the one that feels defensive, and then stonewalls. Stonewalls is is just another word for redrawing and isolating, not engaging with your partner. Like a wall is up, 
you know, a thick wall that you can't penetrate. And so this person basically shuts down and stops responding completely to their partner. And that's always a really difficult situation to deal with because even um, when we see that in therapy, you know, it's really hard to move the relationship forward if one half of the relationship is not participating, right? So that's a really hard one to work with. Right. Yeah. Okay, kind of this leads me into my next question. What if all four of these are present in quite high levels? You know, can it be fixed? Or, you know, is there a threshold at which I, this relationship just has to end, just get out of there? I, I, I always um, encourage people with this question to first check, is this in any way a psychologically, emotionally abusive relationship? Mm. And, and obviously, I think for maybe for a lot of people, physical abuse is, I would say, um, more black and white, right? But when we come to the areas of psychological or emotional abuse, that's where there are more gray areas. And um, when I am with a client who is in an abusive relationship, um, you'll see that the first thing that goes is her sense of self-worth, her sense of self-esteem, right? Because if you are with a partner that is continuously for instance, questioning your reality, gaslighting mm-hmm. you, yeah, um, making you seem like the crazy person in the relationship, quote unquote, um, putting all the blame on you all the time, right? Taking no ownership of his or her behaviors or shortcomings. If your partner has difficulty apologizing, um, difficulty. Um, engaging in healthy conflict, this person in you know in an abusive relationship will no doubt find herself extremely vulnerable to depression and anxiety. Right. Yeah. Um, because our most intimate relationships affect our quality of life. There's no running away. From, we can't escape that. There's no running away from that. Yeah. You know. So. Um, if you're with somebody that continuously um, questions your worth as a human being, you are going to question your worth too, eventually. Right, right. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned earlier the signs of a healthy relationship and how you know you can work on yourself, you can work on your attachment injuries. But if you do that and all of these are still present, then big red flag, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think, like I said, we're not looking for a there's no such thing as a perfect relationship mm-hmm. where we're looking for uh, individuals that can take ownership of their own um, unmet emotional needs or attachment injuries and are willing to work on them continuously for the sake of the relationship, but also for their own sake, right? For their own personal growth and well-being. Uh, they want to be better humans, better individuals, better partners, better parents. Um, and it's not that, like I said before, um, all relationships um, struggle with criticism and conflict um, but it's about um, when we look at a healthy relationship, we realize that it's not the absence of conflict that makes a healthy relationship. It's actually the ability to engage in healthy conflict and what we call the ability to repair. 
right? So when we have a conflict, whether it's an intimate relationship or a friendship or a work relationship, what we call it, there's a rupture that happens, right? Maybe there's, I'm not sure if I can trust you anymore. I'm not sure if I can depend on you. You know, I'm not sure if um, you're going to text me when I text you, you know, like, I'm not sure. There's a bit of a rupture here, right? What happens next is very important. So the repair is as important as the rupture. Right. Can I repair this relationship? Am I going to take steps to tell the other person that I still value you and you're, I'm going to invest my time and energy and love into you because I care about you? So I might make mistakes and I will make mistakes, but I can, if I can say I, I treasure you and I you know, treasure this relationship enough to work on it, that commitment is going to take that relationship forward. Right. So, okay, if that is not like a habit of yours to, you know, have that repair um, behavior, how do you work with clients to kind of foster or to build that behavior in order to heal the relationship? I think this question is especially relevant to the partner who might have an avoidant attachment style, right? So when I meet with people who are who have avoidant coping strategies, and the most typical, I mean, obviously, is denial, withdrawal, and isolation. So most people who have avoiding, avoidant coping strategies uh, will tell you that they don't want to engage in conflict because it is um, unproductive or will make things worse. Or they will tell you that conflict makes them intensely uncomfortable and distressed, or both. And they most likely grew up in um, families or cultures that did not encourage or educate them on how to engage in healthy conflict. So for these people, conflict is labeled as something bad, you know, and I want to avoid this bad thing at all costs. So even if I have to shove this issue under the carpet for three years and pretend that everything's okay, I will do that because for me, that's better than addressing the conflict. So for people, for individuals who are, you know, have avoidant attachment styles, a lot of what we do in therapy is to really neutralize conflict. Is to say that conflict can be useful and healthy and good you can use this opportunity to deepen the connection you have with your partner and maybe even deepen the connection you have with yourself, right? To stop maybe denying or running away from the things that you've been carrying with you for so long. Um, so I think it's about also practicing healthy conflict resolution skills. Um, but most of all, it's really overcoming that emotional block, right? that they have towards any kind of conflict. Right. All right, just flipping that question, then say you're working with someone with an anxiety attachment, how do you work with them to help them have healthier relationships? So I think for the anxiously attached individual, like I said before, a lot of it is about really being mindful of your own boundaries and then articulating that to your partner and then maintaining those boundaries. And I think it's just connected to what we also talked about just now before about not taking too much responsibility for your partner or for the relationship. So understanding where your part ends and where the other person's part begins. Hmm. Um, so oftentimes, 
Uh, for the anxiously attached individual, what we do a lot in therapy is to help this person emotionally regulate themselves, right? How do we bring this person to a more calm state of mind on their own, right? So it could be um, regular self-care, you know, um, regular um, checking in with your um, support system other than your partner, right? Not over, overly relying on your partner. Um, coming to therapy, you know, being instead of continuously looking towards your partner to meet your emotional needs, for this person, it's about teaching her or him to meet their own emotional needs. Right. Okay. And I guess whether you're in a relationship right now or single, these are things you can work on at at this moment, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely, right? Um, I, I think a lot of dating um, coaches, I'm not a dating coach, but I've heard this very often and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, but there is a saying, right, that um, the best thing you can do um, while you're single is to really um, be your best self, right? To work on... Um, healing those attachment wounds in a support system or with a therapist irregardless of whether you're dating or you're um, choosing to be single or whether you're in a relationship I think this definitely applies okay so another question for all the single people out there listening so often people make a list of qualities that they want in a partner before you know getting into a relationship is this realistic Will this help them find a relationship that's less toxic? You know, I've worked with a few individuals like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, must, I must say, when people come with me, uh, I'm sorry, when people come to me uh, with a laundry list of like, you know, 20, 25 qualities of their perfect partner, I always um, kind of encourage them to kind of rethink that list. Because a lot of times... Um, the items of, on that list do not guarantee at all a successful, healthy relationship. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Most of it's pretty irrelevant, if I can say so pretty directly. Um, I think it's good to have what I call the five non-negotiables, right? Obviously, um, you're looking for something specific. Most of us are, you know. Uh, when we become adults, we kind of know what we want and what we don't want by a certain age. And so it's good to have some, some kind of idea of what, who you're looking for, but that list cannot be, you know, two pages long or even one page long. It's a little long. Yeah. What, are, what are some good, like, non-negotiables that you've heard that you, you'd advise people to have this on their non-negotiable list? Okay, so for instance, a good non-negotiable criteria is obviously trustworthiness, right? I mean, I, I would say that we most of us would agree that yeah. it's kind of should be on the list. Can you, um, is this person trustworthy or maybe another word, loyal? Okay, and that's a good criteria would be kind, right? But I've got people coming in with lists that like, like I said, you know, don't really, um, these factors don't actually guarantee your relational success at all, whether it's looks or height or profession or income level, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to go via the scientific data on what makes a great, successful relationship or marriage, your partner's height, looks, weight, 
profession, income level, does not predict relational success. <laughs> um, so I'm pretty direct in, in, in saying that to, to my clients that maybe you want to shorten this list or edit this list because um, at the end of the day, you know, um, we're talking about a healthy relational dynamic. It doesn't matter if that person is financially successful. It doesn't matter if that person isn't as financially successful as you would want that person to be. Yeah, I mean, these sound obvious as we're talking about it, but I feel like some people just don't realize it anyway when they're looking going into a relationship or dating, right? I, 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 f- I feel that, um, I guess when we're talking about uh, dating, I think dating is one of the most vulnerable things that you can do. Right. It's it's kind of like putting yourself out there. Right. It's it's scary and it takes courage to do it. So and I know it's really, really hard. Um, so I feel that sometimes when people come in, come in with these long lists, it's almost like they're trying to, again, protect themselves from getting hurt. You know, right. I only want to date a certain kind of person or a certain kind of personality, uh, you know, or a certain kind of profession because then I can, you know, manage my expectations and make sure that the relationship is a success. Unfortunately, that's kind of the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. I've learned so much today, but basically what I'm kind of, if I were to sum everything up, it's like there's no list or formula for you to say, okay, you're going to meet this person who's going to have a wonderful relationship with you it's more of you know internal work can i work on myself so that i feel secure in myself secure in my boundaries and i'm able to have the tools and build the tools within me to tackle conflict in a positive way in a productive way whatever comes up in whatever relationship comes up and so i hope everyone can learn from this conversation today whether you're in a relationship right now um, whether it's a good relationship or a bad relationship, or if even if you're single and even if you're dating. So thank you so much for all the lessons that you've, you know, packed in this last 40 minutes here. Um, I just have one last question for you, and it's a, it's a personal one. How do you find calm for yourself? Um, th- thank you for that question. <laughs> and thank you for having me here. Um, well, I, I think that for all mental health professionals, we do take self-care very seriously um, because we are aware that um, regular, um, mindful self-care is what makes us effective as, as clinicians. And we want to show up and be present for our clients, our families. Um, and we, and I think for me personally, I, I think self-care should be affordable and accessible and practiced regularly and mindfully. Um, I know that self-care is, you know, hashtag self-care is pretty much overused in social media. And there are a lot of myths surrounding self-care. I think the central, if, if anything, uh, I think the central tenet of self-care uh, is grounded on compassion. Like again, like you said again, very articulately, there is no formula, um, there is no guarantee of a of a successful, healthy relationship. We are all works in progress, and therefore our relationships are works in progress. Um, Self care is also a work in progress, and that means being mindful of what your physiological and emotional needs are on a regular, if not daily, basis. You know, sometimes self care means sleeping in; other times, self care means getting up and. Um, going for a run, you know. So it's different 
every day, and that's okay. There is no template to follow. There is nothing that you must do, and sometimes the best self care is invisible. It's about saying no when you、uh, don't want to burn out. Right, it's drawing those healthy boundaries. Is about resting at home where there's nothing. That you can possibly put on Instagram, you know. So sometimes the best self care cannot be seen or articulated, and it's something that you make a promise to yourself, and that you honor yourself on a regular basis. Thank you for that, and thanks for this conversation today. You're most welcome. Thank you for listening to Calm Conversations. If you liked today's conversation, make sure to follow this podcast. We have a lot more interesting conversations lined up. Dealing with many different aspects of mental health from an Asian cultural lens. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Telegram, or Facebook to find out when we're releasing our next podcast episode or hosting our next talk. You can look us up as Calm Collective Asia or go to our website www.calmcollective.asia. This podcast is supported by the National Youth Council, the Youth Action Challenge, and Youth Collab. Also, a huge thank you to Snakeweed Studios who are helping us record and produce this podcast. See you next time. Until then, stay calm.